0: That's something that I think is critical. That's what we have always done well, the Jewish people. We took our pain and we turned it into growth, into building. We took our tears, the tears became like they watered the soil for things to grow.
1: From the moment we are born, the story of our lives begins to be written. This is Chapters, a podcast dedicated To exploring our story. Who am I and what am I meant to be doing in this world? Perhaps through listening, understanding, questioning, we better understand our own story. Rabbi Jacobson, a world-renowned speaker, Chayzav the Rabbi for 15 years, author of New York Times bestseller, Towards a Meaningful Life, and a giant in his knowledge and wisdom, it's an honor to sit across from you. So we're currently obviously experiencing really difficult times. It feels like we're in black and white. It feels like sometimes that I teach history, I feel like we're in 1648 or 1391. The images that are coming out, it feels like Auschwitz and it just doesn't feel like it should happen in 2023. And the response of the world just makes everything worse and makes it so much more difficult. And people are feeling really hopeless and people are feeling very lost, and they don't know where to turn, and being on social media doesn't help the situation, but yet it feels like it's the only thing you can do, and I can say for myself, I don't remember what I used to think about last week, I don't remember anything else, it's all I think about, it's all I dream about, it's what a lot of people are thinking about all over the Jewish world. So the first thing I want to ask of you is that we see so much unity going on right now, and It's so beautiful, but sometimes it just feels like this unity is coming from a place of pain. Why is this happening? Why does Hashem, I know this is a really big question, but why do things like this happen? Is there a response for it? What are you meant to say to people?
0: Well, firstly, thank you for having me. And I think in times like this, um, the Friedrich Rebbe once said, previous Lubavitch Rebbe, he said, that in times and difficult times, it's difficult to speak, but it's more difficult to remain silent. So the mere fact that you have a platform like this and uh, you've invited me, I think, is a certain statement uh, of defiance that we are not going to succumb to depression and to being overwhelmed and demoralized and that we will be stronger than ever. So I think uh, another way of, rephrasing the question or answering it, is I'll do it more, I don't know if it's called scientific or business-like way, but the fact of the matter is, one of the biggest mysteries of history is Jewish survival, okay? Just to state the, the facts. This is not suppositions, it's not theories. The Jewish people are here from almost the beginning of time. So we've gone through probably suffering more than any people have at the hands of the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Persian empire, the Greek empire, the Roman empire, the Ottoman empire, the Spanish empire. I mean, all the way down to the Holocaust, just uh, 80 years ago. And everyone wondered, how did we make it? None of them, none of those empires, they had great armies, they had great wealth, they had great amounts of land. And here's a people who, we really didn't even have a land for 2000 years and no control, we were completely at the mercy of our hosts, and yet 14, 15 million people strong with eight billion people on the planet, how did we make it? And I think the answer lies in the question that you asked, because we were able to look at pain and suffering, even the worst type, in the eyes. We did not escape it, we didn't go into denial, we didn't run away, but we said, it's not going to kill me because I'm not identified by my pain and suffering, I suffer. And I'll do everything possible to protect myself and my children, but will not be identified by it. The second thing is, when there came to that big question, why? Why would God allow such a thing to happen? And I'll, I'll bring it back to our present war, but it's the same question of the Holocaust, same question of every why would God allow good people to suffer? Why would God innocent children? What did they do? And ultimately, and I'm going to quote my great Rebbe, my great teacher, our great Rebbe. Whenever asked that question, he would say, we don't know God's ways. We don't know why God created the universe either exactly. You remember that if God didn't create love, there'd be no opposite of love either. You know, we could all not be here. There's also life is also a blessing. So there's a mystery involved. But here's the key thing. Not knowing the answer to why suffering happens does not make us weaker. It's not a statement of, of uh, surrender, despair. of passivity or despair. It's a statement saying that there are things in life that are beyond us. And the question that has to be asked, I saw this in the letter, very powerful. We don't ask why, we ask what are we gonna do about it? Why is a question, especially if you can't answer it, of a victim. It says, what are we gonna do? How, you know, we're lost, why? What are we gonna do about it? it says, I don't have the answers to everything. So I may not be, have the answer, but I have the strength. Well, we're looking for a strength to get through it, and that's what kept the Jews going. That even in the worst situations, they always had that burning ember. Something that remained was that flicker of faith, of hope, of knowing that we will prevail. We are not going to lie down and die. Even when Jews marched to the gas chambers, they sang, I believe, with complete faith, which sounds like insanity. They had all the right to be angry at God. But what they were declaring was, you may take our bodies, you can't take our souls. You may take our lives, you can't take our faith. And if it won't be us, it'll be our children. If it won't be our children, it'll be our grandchildren. So I don't have an answer why now the numbers are, I don't even want to repeat the numbers of how many innocent men, women, and children were massacred in the last day, on Simcha's of all days of the year. So if you want a real question, on Simcha's you know, like the holiest, the, the happiest day of the year, so I don't have an answer why, but I know one thing, is that we have the resources to demonstrate that light is stronger than darkness. And we're not going to become like our oppressors. We will not be them. We will fight. We'll defend ourselves. We will not turn the other cheek. We will do everything possible to avenge this innocent blood. But we will build and we'll become greater people. In the words of, the, of, of Exodus, where it says, when the, as the more the Jews were afflicted and suffered, the greater they flourished and they thrived. You know, some people say the Jewish people are like a teabag. You don't know how strong they are until you put them into hot water. We don't want to be in hot water. We don't like this. We're not warriors. We don't like blood. We don't like death. But you push us in this direction. We'll do what we have to do. But above all, it's the spiritual war that will be won, that we will prevail. And we say, I'm Yisrael Chai. So, you know, I personally, I'll tell you without question, I mean, I, I'm i just as shocked as everybody. I still can't even believe, you know, like the, the especially when you start hearing the type of atrocities, uh, Simcha's Torah morning when we all found out about it. But I was trained, you know, I sat at the feet of the Rebbe, from Bavitch Rebbe, and I learned from him. I learned that we are soldiers. Soldiers don't have, can't afford to become depressed. We have a war to fight and we have to forge ahead. And sometimes we will shed tears, but we cannot in any way slow down. So I feel mobilized myself really, honestly, even though I'm not on the front line, not sacrificing my very life, but I feel that we have an obligation, you and I and everyone listening, an obligation to take, be go on the offense and do everything possible to reach people more love, more unity, more mitzvahs, more commitment. That's how we, that's how Jews do it. And that's why we're here.
1: I was in Tel Aviv like a few weeks ago, and there was so much hatred. Like the worst, my friend wasn't kickhard during Yom Kippah, and everyone was spitting at each other, like literally. I saw
0: some of the videos, yeah.
1: And my friend was there, and she said it's worse than the videos. Like it was terrible, and I was there during the Hafganaad, and the way people were talking about each other. And now two weeks later, we all love each other, and we're all packing boxes at Kickhard Dizengoff, and I. I feel so sad saying this because I love how much we all love each other now. People are like, I love you. And people are connecting and people were literally begging me to do Shabbos candles. And it was so beautiful. But do we need this to like all of a sudden love each other?
0: Yeah, you asked me the biggest question of all, which I have the same disturbing thoughts, which is like, you know, do we need tragedy to wake us up? Unfortunately, I have to say, that nothing wakes people up like loss. When we're in our comfort zones, and when things are going so-called smoothly, and um, we usually don't, we take it for granted, and we turn petty, we could turn petty, some people do, and we start focusing on nonsense, then suddenly when you're, and I don't wanna compare it, when Jews are suddenly in a barrack, in a concentration camp, and they're gassing men, women, and children, doesn't matter whether you're religious or not religious, whether you're Haredi or Chilani or uh, Orthodox or Reform or Conservative or Hasidic or Litvish, you suddenly realize, what are we talking about? We mean, you know, we're one family. So I don't like to say, and I don't want to say, that God felt the need to wake us up. God forbid. And we have to take lives for that. But after the fact, let's not forget the words of Rambam, Maimonides, he says when a catastrophe strikes... Uh, community it would be insensitive and cruel to say it was just an accident we have to be introspective go into a soul search mode not point fingers we're not here to point at anyone you point at yourself and what can I do to make the world better what what can I do to make my life better so I don't know if now's the time I mean I'm glad you brought it up frankly but we're not here to say you're to blame you're to blame everyone's to blame we're all in the same family and a family breaks apart it takes two to tango you know, when two people are arguing, brothers and sisters, now we've been woken up. Uh, God forbid that this was the reason for it. But the fact is, after the fact, we're woken up. My, ch- my, my, my concern is when the dust will settle
1: yeah. and
0: time will pass, will we revert back to that foolish, I would say foolish is a mild word, juvenile and, not, and superficial life. And the answer has to be absolutely not. We have to remember. We have to remember, never forget. And um, not to, not, we're not talking about never forget the tragedy. Never forget that what really matters. You could argue with your brothers and sisters, we could have disagreements, but never in a personal way and never in a harmful way and never in a violent way. And if anything that teaches us, look, I, mean, I say to myself, you know, all the violence being perpetrated here, we have to show even more love with more passion than they have for evil. That's the only solution or else they in a sense have prevailed and won. So there's a lot for us to wake up to and I'm glad to see the the unity. You see the outpouring, as you said, I I totally, I think it's real. I think that's the real loss. That's why it's so painful when you see the opposite. And look how quickly things change, you know? Suddenly they realize.
1: And they did a New York Times um this interviewer asked this guy that was at the and he was like you just promised that you're going to put down your arms you promised that you're going to leave the army and you weren't going to be part of this and he looked at him he's like what are you saying like three hundred thousand people showed up to in. people are I have friends on the plane getting to israel right now like we also we love to say all these things we won't push times to shove, it's like everyone feels so deeply. It's like I've never felt so connected in my entire life. And it's so sad that it had to come to this. But it just shows how connected we are. And in Sydney right now, everyone's I'm from Sydney and everyone's petrified because right by my house, we grew up in the nicest, quaintest town. I don't know if I mean, you've been to Sydney. Yeah. It's everyone just cares about the beach and coffee. Like and it's, I saw
0: some of the disturbing videos what they were saying and
1: And it's so disturbing. Gas the Jews, kill the Jews. And it's just like everyone's so scared. People that live in Lakemba in the West, and it's all coming out.
0: But what do the Jews do to them? Why do they have such hatred?
1: If I was living in Sydney, I'm saying the Jewish community is very powerful. We live in a beautiful area. We're one of the strongest, like part of the Wentworth, which is like a really influential district. And And these people it comes out. Like at times like this, the hatred comes out just like our love comes out. What is the response? How people, being fearful is the worst thing.
0: Absolutely. No, no. The fearful is not the way to go. Look, we have the combination of, as I said before, we don't turn the other cheek. We don't just ignore it. We'll do whatever it takes to defend ourselves. You know, we've seen what happened when the whole world was silent. So we're no longer, never again, we're never going to let that happen. But remember, Jews are smart. When Jacob prepared to a confrontation with his brother, Esau, he prayed to God, he prepared a bribe to appease him, and he prepared for war. We covered all the bases, we lock our doors, we do what we have to do. Thank God for him, the prayer and the appeasement worked. He didn't need war. And that's how we have to think of it. When the Jews were stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptians pursuing them, they broke into four camps, what to do? Some said, let's surrender. Others said, let's kill ourselves. We'll jump into the sea. The third said, let's pray. And the fourth said, let's go to war. Moses turns to God. Which one, you know, what other option is there? And Hashem said, God said, very simple. What do you mean? I, I gave you a direct order. If you saw ooh, move forward, forge ahead. I, there's water in front of you. Things will open up and that's what happened. So there's a certain tremendous message that means we will not allow ourselves to get paralyzed in philosophical debates and all these approaches, which at the end of the day, you could argue for a lifetime. And they're all not adequate. Yes, there are times you have to fight. There are times you have to pray. But the most important thing is you have to know that you have to forge ahead. This is not about getting stuck. That's what, that's, you know, I think, let's take military as a perfect example. A commander in chief has no, Time and cannot afford to say, oi, we're stuck. You know something, we have a setback? We'll figure out another way. And that's what I think is the message has to go out to every Jew today. We are not passive. You're a leader. Leaders cannot afford to say, what am I gonna do? You have to show leadership. Call somebody up, say a kind word. People need strength today. You have a rift with someone, make up with them. Let's get beyond the pettiness and the childishness of stuff. There's so many things. Do a mitzvah, light a candle. Pray for the people in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel. Give extra charity. Light Shabbos candles. If you're a man or a boy, put on, after a mitzvah, put on tefillin. Do it with more diligence if you're ready, do it. You know, mezuzah has protective qualities. The point is, act. And I see it, even psychologically. Let's take it away from the even the Jewish, so to speak, quote, psychologically. What's the best way to heal? When you are re- when you're reacting, you're a victim. And that's not the way to heal. You heal by being proactive, by feeling that you control your circumstances, they don't control you. So yes, there are things that happen here that we could not control. But now we have to take control of our attitude. We can't control circumstances, but we can con- That's why the why, we can't really answer the why, but we can control our how we're going to navigate through the circumstances. Good swimmers can't stop a storm from coming, but they know how to navigate when it comes. And bad swimmers will fight the tide or whatever, they don't have the experience, and they can drain their own strengths and so on. And I I honestly feel that we all have deeper strengths, and in times like this, that's what has to come out, those strengths, and we have to strengthen each other. I mean, to be honest, why am I here on this program? Not that I wouldn't do it with you any time, but I now find it like it's compelling to me, if I've been blessed to be able to answer questions or give some strength and guidance, to me it's a crime if I don't share. And it has nothing to do with me. I happen to be in the right place at the right time. I I, I had good uh, teachers and good mentors, you know? So I feel personally like as responsible. I'm not the only one, but I feel for myself that I need to do whatever I can. You know, I, I gave a class last night, a pretty powerful class about this whole, all these issues I got today, all kinds of phone calls one guy told me i'm momish lying in bed depressed and i listened to your program and i got out of bed i was able to get some strength that doesn't make the take the pain away let's not forget we're not going uh, we're not avoiding what's happened the question is what do we do next i see the young soldiers the young military 19 20 21 year olds like going in the tanks and all these videos and you know of course everybody throwing food to them and all that but i see them and i see their faces and their innocence, and they put their enthusiasm, and they're going to, they're going to, they're sacrificing their lives. They, you know, they could come back, and, or not come back, and but they are doing the most sacred thing a person can do, protect another human being. They're like the holiest of the holy. And um, I mean, so so you can look at everything in two ways. You can look how terrible it is, and you can look what strengths we gained through it, and how can we forge ahead. I don't have what to say about the, the, those that lost for their lives are over. You know, all I can say is that God owes them a lot for, uh, you know, their souls were taken for no reason simply because they're Jewish. And I know I could have been one of them if I was there. You know, innocent people from all, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Make, it, it breaks your heart. But I, I've learned and trained myself that when I feel pain and anguish, that's energy. Remember, pain is energy. The only thing is it's inverted energy and you have to take it and harness it toward positive growth. That's something that I think is critical. That's what we have always done well, the Jewish people. We took our pain and we turned it into growth, into building. We took our tears, the tears became like they watered the soil for things to grow. That doesn't take away from the pain, but it just gives it some redemption. Some some uh Resolution, if you wish, some... And if we don't do that, then that's the tragedy. If you just let suffering happen and you don't redeem it in some way, you don't turn it into something positive, then that's a disgrace. Then what do you say then? It wasn't, you know.
1: Yeah, like the first 24 hours, I was so scared to turn off my phone after Shabbos. Like I was at the phone ringing in here and I didn't want to go home. Then I turned on my phone and these videos are like, beyond horrendous and I'm like sitting on the floor in my room for hours like I didn't sleep I was having nightmares and then like it dawned on me like where are these videos coming from who is sending these videos at the first 24 hours the videos were coming from Hamas and what they were doing worked like they were victorious over yeah me. they
0: wanted to drive panic and demoralization that's what you know in war one of the methods of war is to get the enemy to panic like you'll even do decoys and deception. You think, wow, look how much power they have, and people just run. That's the key. It's driving fear in your enemy. You could be one person against a thousand, but if they're all afraid, and they don't, you know, it's like it's bluffing, but, it's, but, it, but it has tremendous effect. You know, but the Baal Shem have heard from his father on his deathbed as a little child, he says, Don't be afraid of anything except Hashem, except God. You know, just to, to lighten the mood a bit, I'll share, I have an uncle. Well, he passed away in a car accident, unfortunately, as a young man, um, and as was his child. he once wake up in the middle of the night, it was a thunderstorm, so he was scared. So he comes running to his mother, my grandmother's bed, and he's all scared, so his grandma, my grandmother says to him, his mother says, Safizuk was his name, go back to sleep, only be scared of Hashem, nothing else. Well, okay, went back to sleep, but the thunderstorms didn't go away, it came back, He's suddenly all awake again and comes running to his mother, his mother, said to my, his mother said, what are you afraid of? He says, I'm afraid of Hashem. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but the point being is that fear is a very debilitating force. The Balatanya, the Alter Reverend Zalman says, anything that demoralizes you and does not allow, does not motivate you is coming from a bad place. He gives an example, two people wrestling even if you're the weaker one, even if you're the stronger one, but you feel depressed, you won't have the energy, you won't have the, the motivation. You'll feel, uh, you know, you gave up before you began. That's called psychological warfare. That's why Simcha and joy is so important. It's not denial, you know, people, how could you dance? I spoke, I was in California doing it at Simcha's Torah. My daughter lives there. Oh, wow. So I met, So the rabbi asked me to say a few words. How could you dance We know what's going on? So I said, we're not dancing because we're escaping. We're not dancing because you know we're, we're, we're safe and they're not. We're dancing because God says to dance. And just like a mitzvah to cry is a mitzvah to dance. Simcha strengthens the spirit that we have to know we will forge ahead, we will win. This is a march of victory. Yes, we have battles to fight, but even from the beginning of the battle, the custom is in some armies that you sing a song of victory. I said, look at any sports game. Why do the coaches all, everyone's, all the team is all coming together and they're jumping. They didn't even begin playing because you come in with confidence, you fight very differently and you, uh, so it's a simcha of netzach and a simcha of Am Chai, we will prevail, we have a certain eternity. It, it doesn't take away at all from the pain. You know, it's not, again, it's not, uh, we're not this is not some type of uh, frivolous escapism into joy. It's simcha it's, uh, sachaim, that we are alive, and we will avenge, and we will protect, and so on. You know, it reminds me when uh, uh, there was a, some people had suggested years ago that at the Seder table, to remember the Holocaust, the six million, everyone should have an empty seat. Leave an empty seat to remember the void. And I remember the Rebbe, the Bavich Rebbe said, why leave a void on the contrary? Invite someone to fill that seat. So that's that's the best way to honor the people. Because if had they been here, they would have been at the table. They would have made their own seder tables. It's a tremendous, it's a tremendous contrast between the two. One is the idea that you just the pain and the suffering, and the other is filling the va- the void and filling the gap.
1: There was one video that actually like got me off my floor in my bedroom, and it was a. F- I would love if you could. I'm sure you were there, but it was when the Rebbe spoke in 1973 during the Yom Kippur war, because that year it wasn't just, it continued into Yom Tif, into, um into Sukkot, and everyone was really sad and really depressed. I heard, like my uncle said that in a shul they found out the news in Great Neck. He said this year, Simchatar, no one danced. And I'm watching this video on the rabbis saying like, the way we respond to this is in joy. And I was telling my students, if I said that, don't listen to me, like who am I to say that we should be happy and joyous? But there was one line the rubber said, ha silcha, Hashem is your shadow. And that was the one line that I kept on repeating to myself, like ha Silha silcha, Hashem is your shadow. When we down here are depressed and we're not united, Hashem mirrors us. But when we are joyous and we're united, and we feel like we're gonna be victorious, Hashem is giving us the victory, because it's our shadow.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Look, the fact is attitude, mood, um, your state of mind changes things. There's no question about it. Think of someone lying in a hospital bed, God forbid. And they have guests, and they have friends, and family, and gifts. The same person right near them has the same problem. But there's no one comes to visit that person. You don't need to be a doctor to know that your immunity system gets stronger when you feel that support, when you feel the love. and um that's exactly right. So our attitude when we say track good Vidang good, think good, it will be good. What you just said, the idea the face you show is the face you get in return. That's how it is. smile someone, they'll smile back. You show them a sour face. What do you think happens? You know, I read earlier. Uh, when was it a few days? A little while ago, it was this farm boy. He never visited a city. So he had never seen mirrors, you know, a mirror. So he comes to a with family, they come to visit someone in the bigger city. The first thing he sees is a mirror. He's looking in the mirror and he's like, you know, see, so he starts crying, he starts yelling. He says, and the host says, What's the matter? He says, There's another boy in the mirror making funny faces at him. So the the host says, If you smile to him, he'll smile back, you know, a mirror. He didn't know it was a mirror. So we are mirror imagery. We call it mirror neurons. You know, with this empathy, we feel for each other, and that has great strength. But there's no question about it, that the fact is that we have to, we cannot allow the, our enemies to control our souls. You know, it's bad enough if they can control our bodies and they can control, sometimes, unfortunately, they can do so- things hurt us, but they cannot destroy our spirits. And that's the key to everything. What's
1: your take on social media because right now I'm addicted I'm just gonna be honest and I can't get off it and I feel like I need it and if I'm not on it I feel like I'm lost but at the same time we're all consuming all this content and then there's two sides to my question the first side is like is fighting anti-Semitism a real thing are we meant to be on social like we're so little does it really matter what we post? Is that important? Should we be doing that?
0: In my opinion, the more you stay off social media, the more you stay off the media in general, frankly, watching the news, the healthier it is for people. Because unless you need that information in some way to help you fulfill your mission in life, just ask yourself that question. So if you told me your mission is to have a social media platform because you're sharing Torah, you're sharing inspiration, Okay, so then you need it for that. But then you have focus. I rarely go to social media, even though I'm all all over social media. I have a team. If someone needs, you know, today, if someone wants to send me a video, they'll send me a WhatsApp or some text. So I'm not concerned I'm gonna miss out. The fact of the matter is, I don't see any benefit in it really. Uh, And especially if you're not in control. Remember, there's a thing called addiction. You know, our phones can be an addiction, just like a drug, and so can social media. And that means the social media is controlling you. You're not controlling it. So just ask yourself: if you're controlling it, by all means, use it as a tool and instrument. If you're not controlling it, it's controlling you. You have to answer. You have to watch after this. It's it's you know whether it's voyeurism or so on. I'm not trying to be critical of anyone. No, I just can take control of your life. You know, I feel personally that a person has to live from the inside out. You should generate instead of others stimulating you. You know, we don't live vicariously through the the addiction that people have to soap operas or to sports and so on it's all fine you know i i'm, I'm not a fire and brimstone against uh, all these things uh, fine entertainment but if you start living your life through your entertainment you know who's your hero not you oh here's, he's my hero why don't you become the hero you know we are found through technology. We're replacing our own responsibility. Someone tells me, I said, "So you do exercise?" Yeah, I'm into sports. I love it. I said, so "What sports?" I watch football every Sunday. I watch baseball every whatever. You know, so it's become like if I watch it, it's like I'm doing it. But you're not doing it, you know. And then when you see children, look how children get glued to a screen. That tells you enough. They get it's it's hypnotic. Trust me. I'll also be transparent. I also have times I want to see something. Even though know, I'm sometimes working hard and writing something, I need some distraction. But the point being is that, but, but at least I recognize, and thank God for me I'm not addicted to it. I've always seen it as a tool. I used to began my life with a typewriter, a plain typewriter. You know what that is?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: I don't know. Maybe you're not old enough to know what a typewriter is. Some people, typewriters are only in museums.
1: I've been to museums. The, the, <laughs> the,
0: okay, the fossil, it's a fossil. I started with, I actually started with a pen or a pencil. Then a typewriter, then a word processor, then a fax machine, then a computer, and then a laser printer, and then started the internet. you know so I grew with all this. To me, it was only a tool and asset. I was never excited by, oh, a new version a new... I wasn't into the to me, it was tools that made things faster. This way, a typewriter took twice as long to write an essay or write a, a write so- an article. with a word processor, I don't have to type it twice, you know, for example. A fax machine, you can get something, a document to someone without having to wait for the mail. And the same thing with everything, the internet. So I've always seen it as a tool that helped to accelerate and amplify, you know, just like a calculator. A calculator can do the calculator, crunches numbers faster than you and I can. You know, I mean, I don't want to digress into AI, but all of technology, if if it's if it's enhancing a human uh, aspirations or divine aspirations, but great. If it just replaces us, then we become a slave to it. That's my response, especially now. ask You have to ask yourself the question. I'm saying this to everyone. When you watch these things, what does it do for you? Is it depressing you? Is it bringing you down? Is it just some sensationalism that you now, you know, you know more of the pain that's going on? If it's helping you, motivate you to do your job. Like sometimes I will watch a, a, a disturbing video about these atrocities only for one reason. It's not that I like to watch it. It makes my blood boil and it gives me more motivation and drive. And I'll stay up longer to write an article or to do an interview or something like that. So I use it actually to uh, get my blood going, my adrenaline, you know? Not to the, not the, the see the gr- a, a, a grotesque scene. I just mean to show the gravity of the situation that we're dealing here with real serious stuff. It's not just, okay, it's hearsay, some rumor or something. So I mean I'm just giving you my own little. Uh,
1: so do you think people should be watching this? Like, what's no, the stance? No,
0: absolutely not, because it all it does is bring you down, and just and and, and it could also be traumatic. Um, we're all human beings. I was just watching someone from Hatzalah who's seen. I've seen a veteran, a veteran uh, in the military Israel that that saw friends of his blown up in wars, but when he saw some of this, he said. No, this was nothing. Nothing comparable. So this is people who are seasoned veterans went through. Who knows what? They're saying that. I do not think I see any benefit in watching. Yeah, maybe President Biden should watch it so then he can understand what's going on so he can make correct policy decisions. You know that's why President Eisenhower made sure that there were cameras and there were witnesses because he said one day they'll deny it and it was important. But does that mean we have to go expose everyone to watch those those those? those horrible scenes? So I think my answer is absolutely not. What we should be focusing on is what is your mission in this world? Hashem has put you in this world, God put you in this world. What is it, you're a soldier. You're also a soldier in an army. What are you doing to fulfill your calling? That to me is number one, it gives respect and dignity to everything that's going on. It also shows we're partners with those that are sacrificing their lives now. And also it demonstrates another thing. Why are you here? You know, this is a time to ask yourself. God took people. You think all of us can be taken. You have to really, really take it seriously. You're here for a purpose. Why were we blessed to be here in the year 2023? Tov Shempeh a new Hebrew year, alive, healthy. It's not just to to, what, to watch the videos. No, it's to do something with your life. And to, and that's how I see it, that every, every atrocity, every atrocity, every tragedy has to be translated. For every negative thing you hear about, you have to do more light than there is darkness. Do you every think... time you hear something, if someone told me they watched these videos and then they went out and did a thousand more mitzvahs, then I'd say, okay, that got you to do mitzvahs. I'll forgive you for that. But if not, what's the point?
1: Do you think people should be fighting anti Semitism on social media or is it like useless? Why are we even trying?
0: I think there's a third answer. I don't think that should be our way of fighting anti Semitism. First of all, um, generally speaking, debates don't work. Those that I hate, I'd like someone to show me that I said something on social media and I changed the mind of an anti-Semite.
1: I have friends that have non-Jewish friends and they said that like they posted it on their social and like their non-Jewish coworker reached out to them. Is that... No, It's posting... What do you think?
0: My view on the matter is that we have to be proactive in posting beautiful messages of love, of unity, and saying... We are solidarity with Israel. We're in solidarity with innocent people. Let's do. Let's light a candle for them. Let's do. A, let's do another mitzvah. Let's show kindness. That, by all means, in social media. But to start debating, because firstly, some people are looking for you to debate with, and that and that'll just give them more, more opportunity to spew their venom. Why should you want to be part of that? And people who are naive or, or don't really have experience think they can, they're gonna debate an anti-Semite. Yeah, there are the few that you maybe can change their minds, but I think the way to go is not through social media. If you know an anti-Semite that you have a connection with, invite them for Shabbos and give them a good meal. And, and uh, I would not do it on social media. Also, there are other people watching, who knows what they're gonna hear. And then they, you know, and the anti-Semite happens to have good arguments, so you're now giving them a platform. I'm totally against that in in every possible way.
1: What about the middle ground? If
0: I was invited even onto a media platform with an anti-Semite, I'd probably reject going.
1: Not just anti-Semites, regular people that are reading the news.
0: So the way is, look, I'm a communicator. You have a platform. The best defense is offense. Instead of waiting to respond to them, let's put out information that is positive, that is true, to me that's the best way that you preempt their arguments that's the way to do it to get to engage th- this stuff is very you know i have i have i have 241,000 subscribers to our youtube channel that's a lot mm-hmm. many of them are muslims many are christians i see some of the comments i i spoke about whether the jews have should the jews kill their enemies you know i'm answering questions that are coming my way so so I spoke about it. Of course, I spoke. It's self-defense. We're not talking about killing. You're calling about a person who's coming to kill your children. You kill them before they kill you. You know that's simple self-defense. So, someone I see, a Muslim, writes a comment that whatever the rabbi is saying applies the other way around as well. That they have a right to kill their enemies. So I saw he's using what I'm saying. You know, now obviously it's a big difference because find me a Jew that ever did anything close to this. You know, even after the Germans, what the Germans did us did we go back and start beheading Germans or, 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 uh, or doing other brutality, you know, and they deserved it. That's not our approach. We'll defend ourselves. But, we, you know, my, my point is I don't want to get into a debate like that, but people can use all kinds of stuff. Debates in general, let's be very honest, are either for entertainment purposes or just for haters. I don't believe in debates. Even about God's existence, I wouldn't debate. My way approach would be share what I know and let the people decide. Debates usually don't work. Anyway, the point is not so much debates. I will tell you this. There is a battle going on here. A battle not just on the front lines. There's a battle over the minds, you know what's going on on campuses. Young impressionable minds. So we do have responsibility to educate people I just uh, discovered a, a dialogue that I wrote up a few years ago, it was a, because I had two people coming to my class, one was a pro-Palestinian, one was a pro-Israel. So I decided to, to, to hear their arguments and I put it into a dialogue, a five-part dialogue, which is as, about Gaza, actually, it was about Gaza, you know. And, and my goal was, let's put the information out. The more you inform, unfortunately the propaganda war, um, I don't wanna say it has been won, but in many ways, has had an effect on many, many minds, Jewish minds as well. I'm talking about the Hamas and, and the Palestinian, but you know that Israel's apartheid and all this, this stuff, that they're the ones in concentration camps. And the only way you'd battle that is with facts. You know, Another hat I wear is I'm the publisher of Algemeiner.com. My, my father founded it 52 years ago. And there, the war is a media war, it's an information war. And the best way is to put out the facts Don't allow. So, look. If you happen to be on social media and you see someone write something that's a complete distortion, I'm not going to tell you don't respond, and but but you should probably bring a source, add a link just to expose them. But I wouldn't make it a crusade. I wouldn't make that the main preoccupation, because you can end up sitting and being entangled with a lot, a lot of uh, called toxic uh, toxic waste
1: people are feeling really frustrated that like let's say big celebrities are not speaking out. Like let's say this happened in Ukraine, every or Black Lives Matter, everyone would be jumping on the bandwagon. So people are feeling extremely frustrated. What is your response to that?
0: Nothing new. What happened during World War Two? Six million innocent people were being gassed, massacred. You know, so either people minimized it or we didn't know, we didn't hear. Today we know people knew plenty. So it's nothing new, and um, I remember Menachem Begin, Prime Minister, when he got up, someone was lecturing him or something and trying to criticize him uh, for something he did as Prime Minister, so he gave a great speech. You know, he basically said, in, uh, in very diplomatic terms, but quite powerful ones, he says, don't lecture me on morality. He didn't go into defense. Don't lecture me on morality. Where were you when we were being massacred? We don't want the world. We don't need your approval, because you were not there when we needed you. We will take what we'll do. We'll take care of ourselves. We'll protect ourselves. I'm not saying it's half as eloquent as he did. So it's critical to know. Of course, we want allies, and of course, thank God, America is an ally of Israel in many ways. Tremendous support, and probably more than we even imagined, especially now. And it's not like we're looking to offend anyone but we're not gonna be lectured by people about morality. You know, that to me, I find that to be more than offensive. You know, I remember the Rebbe Lubavitcher Rebbe said once in a talk, just always remained with me. He says, they're lecturing us on morality? We stood, when we stood at Mount Sinai and saying, we're accepting God's laws. Do not steal, do not murder, do not be profane, do not be decadent. What were they doing? They were cannibals eating each other. We brought civilization to the world. I'm saying now, you know, you read a book like Thomas Cahill. Non-Jew wrote a book; it was a bestseller years ago called "The Gifts of the Jews." He, I think, he uses 30 phrases, 30 terms that the Jews introduced to the world. You know what the words are: optimism, uh, dignity, trust, love, um, destiny. I mean, it's amazing. And you think, what would the world be like without those concepts? You know, a pagan world, Abraham came single-handedly, introduced the idea of morality. That life is not dog eats dog and survival of the fittest. So I don't need anyone lecturing. Are we perfect? No, 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 we're not perfect. But to talk about the ideals, I mean, four billion people on this earth, 2.2 uh, 2 2 billion Christians, 1.8 billion Muslims, where did the ideas come from? You know, the New Testament, the Quran, it's all based on the Bible, you know? If you want, Jesus was even an Orthodox Jew. Let's go that far. My point being is that we don't need them to lecture to us about morality. Anyone does a little studying about how the standards of the Israeli army when they deal with their enemies would be shocked of how careful they, they, when you're dealing with people who are reusing civilians as human shields and are ready to massacre innocent people. So there I I become uh, radical. I mean radical. No one's going to lecture to us morality What after what was done to us. No, are we perfect? No, but don't lecture to me because you are far, far worse. And uh, so my answer to that is that we have to realize the reality is there's hate in some people's hearts. All we can say is we have Rahmanis, we have compassion for them, and we hope to them, them to get wiser. But we're not gonna back down just to satisfy some people like that. I will also say, they have to acknowledge, that I don't think the hatred today is quite as it was. I mean, some people may have it, but the fact is we live in a country like United States and other free countries that will protect our rights, which is a gift, and we acknowledge that gift. So I think it's important also just as we remember that they're enemies, we have to also remember there are our friends and people who have um, who are showing support. I have, We have someone who works for us at Meaningful Life Center. She lives in Montana now. She says, strangers came and brought flowers and cards. We're wow. with you are. And this is happening across the country. There are many fine people, and I just want to make sure people know that. I would say the majority are fine, but remember, hatred is always louder than love, and and the haters are uh, make a lot of noise. And obviously, it's far more disturbing when you see one hater is going to be more disturbing than fifty uh, than fifty people who bring you flowers. You know, a hater will break your windows, God forbid. And flowers are more, uh, I guess, uh, more. Um, uh, tamer, I don't know what the word is, you know. So um, we were committed to good and we will never give that up. I'm very proud to say when I see, with all that's happened, to show me one Jew that said, let's go into a, an Arab village and let's chop them up and let's rape them and let's pillage them and let's uh, you know, um, mutilate them. Nobody's calling for that. We'll, we'll destroy the enemy and destroy their capacity. We'll do whatever, but we're not here for vengeance. We're here for protection. It's very, very different.
1: Is this Amalek?
0: Call it what you call it. You can call it whatever name you like. If Amalek represents, you know, this looks to me worse than Amalek, actually. Some things they did. Even Amalek didn't do certain things. Amalek was chutzpah, and they attacked the Jews, and they were no friends. But, you know, Haman wanted to just kill all the Jews. I don't know if he called on brutalizing them, and mass, you know. I'm not, listen, I can't compare haters, which I tell you, you know. Um, Hitler, your mach shemite. I don't think... He, from his point of view, if he can get rid of the Jews anyway, he will to get rid of them. Now, of course, the way they treated Jews shows their contempt and all that. But uh, anyway, I, I don't want to compare because I think haters are haters, and they're all they all deserve what they deserve, and we have to eliminate them. <laughs> period. So I don't really care, you know. I mean, I, I, you know, Amalek is a name. Some say Amalek exists today. I, I don't need to be to me calling them Hamas is just as bad as calling them Amalek. So,
1: so now that the war, you know,
0: Hamas in Hebrew. Yeah. Hamas is, is a crime, is, is, is decadence is Is
1: that culture. what they called themselves that? I don't
0: think so. I don't think I don't think they're calling themselves for that reason.
1: As the war progresses, obviously there's going to be like so many more casualties, specifically like in Gaza. What is the Jewish message?
0: A response to the losses on the other side? Yeah. I'll tell you the response. The Egyptians tortured the Jews for 210 years, if not more, in the, in horrible ways. Slavery, genocide, obviously dehumanization, okay? The Jews finally leave Egypt after all that time. They're marching towards Sinai, Mount Sinai. Suddenly the Egyptians regret it, they're, they're going behind them, pursuing them. I, I mentioned it before, the different camps they broke into. Okay. Now, what do you think? I mean, is this like, you're you're already tortured. let, Let them go. No. So God finally performs the final miracle and drowns them all in the sea. Except for Pharaoh, so he should see what happened. You know what happens next? The angels begin to sing shira, praise. You know what Hashem says to them? My creatures are drowning and you're singing praise. We as Jews cry, even when a Nazi dies, not because he doesn't deserve to die, we cry that humanity and people can fall, can can fall and become worse than animals. So we cry for their behavior, and even though we have to protect ourselves, so every every blood shed is the blood of God's creatures. I see that even Hamas, even these brutal. And I'm calling them animals of the way they behave them worse than, worse animals. than animals, yeah, worse because an animal wouldn't doesn't even do that
1: no,
0: you know, so i'm not I have no pity for them, but remember, a Jew never loses sight that there's a bigger picture here, so we'd rather that this never happened. we're not looking for anyone's blood now there's no choice because first of all, there are people right now criminals that did this, second of all, they potentially can do it again, so we have to eradicate it, but we're not celebrating exactly and saying, you know. We'll celebrate that we win a war, but we're not celebrating death. So I think it's a mixed feeling in the sense. What's tragic is that we had to get that we had to we had to come to this. You know, I would say we have to look back and say what did, what did we do wrong that we had to come to this? Why did did we, did we allow them to to build that? I mean, I'm going to say we're blaming them. So my my answer is it's a mixed feeling. You go to war because you have to go to war, not because you want to go to war, and you do what you have to do, and you do it. Without mercy, I don't think any mercy here is allowed. I mean, mercy that will weaken the resolve and so on. But we're not uh, exactly. This is not um, this is something that we asked for. And it's not something that we wa- you know, we want peace. We want Mashiach. We want a world where this will never happen again. So how do you how do you balance those feelings? You balance them. I think the Israeli army has actually shown that over all the years, with everything we've done, exact opposite of what the propaganda says. They never went to massacre. I mean, and even when we did, when Sharon did something, look what happened. His own people took him to task for the, up there in the Golan, where was it? In one of the, one of the areas. I'm not getting into who's right or wrong, but the point is that we are, we have our standards never get lower. You know, the Torah says that even if someone has to be hanged for crime, for murder or whatever, you take them down, you don't leave them hanging overnight. You know why? Because it's Salam Alekim. So it's disgracing God. The, meaning basically the human being has defiled God, and that's why he deserved to die. But you're still, it's still a God's child. It's like if you have to put to death your own brother for whatever reason, it's not like you saw so your biggest simch that day, exactly. You do it, then you cry that you had to do it. So I think that's how healthy people deal with anything. I mean, on a more subtle level, if I can make it a little more palatable, I'd say think of parents have to discipline children. your child did something really bad i'm not comparing obviously to this but just as an example so you 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 to look the other way is not healthy because that way the child never gets the message to just punish them indiscriminately with with anger is also not the way you have to find the right balance to show them i love you so much that what i'm doing now is necessary for your for your future now, I'm not comparing that exactly here because we're talking, obviously, crimes that deserve much, much uh, worse. But my point is it's always a balance to make sure that even when you need to discipline or even when you need to go to war, you're not doing it because you're angry. You're not doing it because your blood is boiling. You're doing it because it's necessary to protect. And there are times you have to be tough. And those, what, what do we say? Those that are kind to the cruel will end up being cruel to the kind. So you have to do what you have to do. And it's not coming from because we're angry people or cruel people. We're doing because, unfortunately, they've they forced us to do this. You know, we could almost say that. You know, I'm sorry to God that I have to kill your children, your creatures, but look what they've become. They've become a threat to innocent people. You know, I don't know if I conveyed it, but this is a subtle thing, and I'm not saying it's easy. It's easy. You know, there was this movie called Inglorious Bastards, right? Um, Tarantino, whatever we have these Jews behaving like Nazis to the Nazis. Kill Nazis, and some people loved it because it was like you know finally let give them a little taste of their own medicine. So there's a certain element of glee when you see that you know when they they uh, branded them their heads they would carve I out couldn't
1: get through the first a, scene a, swa- a swastika <laughs> yeah
0: that scene is horrible I couldn't a swastika on their foreheads and stuff. But the truth is Jews generally don't do that. We don't do that, and that's that you know. I cry over this. I don't just cry for the Jews. I remember, you know, we cry also for all blood. And the fact is, listen, I would like to believe what Golda Meir once said was, when they will love their children more than they hate us, we will have peace. They hate their children too. They hate their civilians. They hide behind them. They hate humans. They become their, I don't even want to call it religious. They become haters. They're sadistic, uh, psychopaths. I don't know whatever the names you want to use for it. And we cry for that because when you see a child that was born, and I don't care if it's a Muslim child, a Jewish child, a Christian child, a Buddhist child, uh, an atheist child, a child is born innocent, and then a a, a human being through choice and through bad education and bad influences can become like that? It's
1: very torn. Very torn because I don't think that the women and children, everyone's like, you don't think they have strong opinions too? Like in some sense, I don't think it's just, the people that are going out, I was on the subway the other day in Kingston Avenue and this little little boy, he must have been 16 with a Palestinian flag, came to cause trouble like by 770 area. And I took a photo of him because I was just like security, whatever. And this lady on the train said to me, you're a grown woman, that's a child. And I'm thinking to myself, no, like a child is the one that's Children are the one that are doing these things right now. These are young people that are going in and doing these terrible, like, atrocities. So I'm very torn. I don't know.
0: Well, look, you know, with um, you mentioned Amalek, and people talk about um, the fact that the Torah says you have to kill every man, woman, and child among Amalek and don't have compassion. And Haman grew out of a child that someone had compassion for, King Shaul. I've been asked this question many times. How could Jews? How could the Torah call for the killing of every child? It sounds yeah. brutal. And recently, got, I just unless this week, I got a call from someone who was one of my classes about this topic. He says, "I finally understand this."
1: I finally understood it.
0: Yeah, because because the Torah. No one else, not you and not I, can determine. We can't. But the Torah sees in a person that this person is going to be someone that will mutilate and kill and behead and, and all the horrible things. So it's another story, and only God can say that. But it's not a rule, it's not, you never, and, and this is my point. The Jews didn't suddenly become barbarians, and every time they met an enemy, they did that. It was an exception, and it's something that you can't just decide on your own. But, um, so I'm not, I'm not calling for the killing of every Palestinian child because they may grow up. I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to say that. Right now the goal is destroy their capacity to do harm to any innocent person. That's the main goal here eradicated no more uh, appeasement or hoping for the best a lot of the mistakes that were made to be honest was hoping that maybe they've tamed maybe they see that the best way to do it is through economic ways you know but you realize and they themselves have said I saw today that they had press conference Hamas and said we how we did this because we lulled the enemy into thinking that we're becoming more peaceful and we were plotting this for years once they put their guard down so, you know what, it's like, um, I heard once, you know, someone from the Midwest, he said, there are dogs that are killer dogs. Doesn't mean they kill every day. But they, if they killed once, you don't look around and say, oh, maybe they've changed. You better be very careful because they can kill at any given time. And what happened in that case was that somebody thought this dog had become calmer and get, let him, gave him more uh, freedom. And the dog ended up um, biting his child and like maiming his child forever or something like that. But um but you know, even when during the time of the of the Nazis, one of the thoughts that people had, one of the ideas that the Jews were such good people. Sometimes when you're a good person you can't even imagine that someone can do that to you. Something you would never do to someone else. You'd never think they'd do to you. And many German Jews and many European Jews said that. They said, No way, they'll never do that. Yeah, they hate us and this. And it's sometimes a testimony to your own it's like it's like if you don't think you can abuse your child, God forbid, you don't think someone else can. But then you find out there are monsters in this world. There are people who can do things that you and your, and your yetsahara wouldn't even think of. You, even in your worst, you wouldn't think of. And that's where we like to believe that every human being on this earth has tremendous goodness in them, and they've been either misguided or miseducated, but then you find out there are people who become so corrupt and so toxic and so, and so dangerous You you must do what you have to do. And the key thing is to remember that even when you do what you have to do, we still don't become haters, you know?
1: I think I quote you. We become
0: more, we're doing it out of love, to be honest. Out of love of mankind, out of love of humanity, out of love of innocence. And sometimes it's like saying, you know what? You come to a point where you can't control yourself, so we're gonna have to control you. You know, you can't control yourself to behave in a way that deserves to be among the human race. So we have no choice to, but to put you down. That's a sad statement, but that's what you've proven. The war like this it has been proven now. You know, to me, if any redeeming elements is that some people have woken up to see how deep the hatred is, how far it can go, you know, and some people, yeah, I, I would hope, I, again, I'm not saying that's the reason that it happened, but after the fact, I would hope that would be that way. You know, I've heard from people in Europe, countries like Sweden and others, or, or South America, that have always taken the position against Israel, have Israel flags going, going up, um, so I hope it lasts. I don't want to be skeptical, cynical, but because once you see certain things, you can't deny it, you know?
1: I think you said this to me, that the spoke about Eretz Yisrael more than any other topic, or most yeah. topics.
0: Absolutely, not even a question. I mean, there's no talk he gave that he didn't mention at Yisrael at the end for sure and the blessings. But go ahead, sorry.
1: No, so what, what would the Rebbe say now? What, not, before we talk about what we need to personally do, what would the Rebbe say to the government? What do you think should be done right now from, your, from just the Rebbe's perspective over the years? I don't know,
0: I'll answer straightforward, very straightforward. The Rebbe always positioned was peace through strength. Peace for peace, not peace for land. Because once you give up land, once you give up your living room, and, but with a promise from the neighbor that they're not gonna, so you gave up the living room and they only gave you a promise. So it doesn't make any sense, especially if they're your sworn enemy. The rebel would say right now, do what you have to do. Eradicate them without leaving them one shred of strength. Why did the allies insist on unconditional surrender? Germany. And Japan, why? Why don't you make it after bombing Berlin and, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki and all that? Let them save their f- safe face and give them a little pride. We know they were already destroyed. A conditional surrender. Let them feel good a little. You know the no, because once they've they've wreaked such havoc and perpetrated such crimes against humanity and against everyone. No 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 no. There's a has to be a clear winner and a clear loser. Unconditional. We're gonna dictate the terms. You're no, You have no terms because if you give them even one inch, they'll say, "Oh, you know, we really didn't lose." You know. So the Rebbe's approach was extremely psychological. Not. It wasn't just based on uh, some spiritual values. It was based on based the understanding of human beings. There's a war fought that we didn't start that you perpetrated. Over 120 million died in the World War One and World War Two. So now it's unconditional surrender. So the rebel would say, apply that same thing. What do you think America would do, by the way, if Mexico or a faction of Mexico attacked Texas? Or what would Australia do if some from, from Ireland, they suddenly you know, did something like What would anyone do? So why are we having a different standard? You know? And we're not looking, again, we're not looking for blood. We're looking for peace. Who said it, that, um, that if the enemies would sincerely lay down their arms, they'd have peace in one second? If Israel laid down their arms, what would they have? No potential secret. annihilation. So my point is that the Rebbe's approach would be full strength and then what did the Allies do after that? They rebuilt Germany. They rebuilt Japan. They're superpowers today. So they ended up getting benefiting greatly. But it had to be on the terms of the winner. The loser has no say here. So I would think the Rebbe would say, finish the job completely. That we don't have to do this again in five years or two years or one year whatever. Um. And then dictate the terms. Make peace with Saudi Arabia, the other countries. Do not give in one inch to the Palestinians. And that They don't like it, let them move somewhere else. What does the United States do to get a green card? They make you crazy. You can't just live here. Someone's going to live here and be a criminal. You want to live in Israel, you have to follow the laws. You don't follow the laws, you, you're, you're uh, what do they call them? You expel them, what's the word for it?
1: You think we should annex it back?
0: Absolutely. First of all, I don't, I don't think it's called, anne- I think annexation is part of the propaganda. Annexation is when you take land that's not yours and you make it yours. Since when is it theirs? When, when, since when? The, the whole myth of Palestine is baloney.
1: We gave it to them in 2005.
0: You mean the G- Gaza? Okay, gave it to them. What does it even mean to give it to them? You know? And, 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 and so, who does it belong to?
1: It was Egypt, then Britain, then the Ottomans. And when
0: the British made the whole of the partitions, did the British own it? We, Erz Israel, is a land that God gave us. Let's start with that.
1: Rashi this week. First Rashi. Yeah, of first Bitarra. Rashi. That
0: even if they say exactly, list them at them, that they're thieves, that you're thieves. But let's, let's start with that. So, the Jews have this land. And frankly, I would say no one in the world has a more, uh, a more claim to a land than Israel. Everyone accepts the Bible as a book.
1: It's archaeological evidence. The
0: Bible says that that this was promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob for the Jewish people, which other nation? America was never promised to Americans. It was belonged to Indians, and same thing Ab- Ab- aborigines in uh, in sure. Australia. So was again. This is preaching. Who are you preaching to exactly? What are you, what are you talking about? Americans killed all the Indians. Israelis didn't. You know, you, and you don't want to live by the laws of the land like a civil person following the laws that, humane laws, leave. Go move to another part of the world. What do they call it when you throw someone out of a country? There's a word, not expel. There's, uh you know, just go.
1: Deport. Huh? Maybe deport.
0: Immigrate, immigrate. But the point being, that would be the Rebbe's approach, and the Rebbe said many times that would bring peace. I was 14 years old when I went to Israel the first time. 1971. I can tell you, there was no fear at all. I went everywhere. Shar Shchem, Damascus Gate. I was going to Hevron, to Shechem, to you name it. And I was going with Arab cabs. I don't know if you remember those big Arab Mercedes buses, Arab buses. And no one even told me there's a problem. At night, by day, wow. same enemies, the same haters. Because you know why? In 1971, they had lost the war, six-day war, and they knew they were losers. And that was that. Unfortunately, I don't want to now is not a time to speak negatively about our own people. Unfortunately, we made them think that they're winners. You throw give them back the keys. It was not well, let's put it this way. It created a tremendous problem when you think, you know, it's like when you when the criminal or the loser starts thinking that they're the winner huh, and then time passes, opened up a tremendous Pandora's box that's now almost impossible to close. I wish they would close. I mean, if someone asked me if I was prime minister and I was able to, this, based on the Rebbe's approach, I would say, you know, we've tried everything. We've tried peace accords. We've tried negotiations. We've tried this. We've tried that. Nothing works. Look now what Hamas has done. I would use it, and I'd say, so we're declaring a new strategy. New strategies like this. Every Arab Muslim who wants to live in this region, around us, you either promise that you follow the laws, and if you don't, You'll be treated like a criminal, either go to prison or leave the country. You know, and that's it. There's no room here for a a uh, a an uh, insurgence within our walls. What would America do? What would America do if a group of people decide they're going to do a civil war against America? It doesn't work that way. And just and enforce it. I the first few years it's going to be difficult because PR the pressure from the world. That's what they should really do now because now the world is with Israel. That's what they should really do. They should just announce. But there's no visionary leader like that. You need a visionary that will say, we tried everything. You know, I'm I'm talking about that. The war goals are to eradicate them. I understand that. But on a bigger picture, nothing has worked we're dealing with a people that call for the constitution for the annihilation of every man woman jewish man woman and child and for the, they want to control all of israel they say it says it in their constitution i don't care whether they act on it every day but it says it in their that's their that's their mandate that's their goal so i would use this opportunity with changing complete strategy we're going to do what every country in the world does with enemies like that and you want to leave 2 million people in gaza if you want to stay alive in this country, you're going to have to sign that you completely accept the laws. You don't like it, leave. There'll be, some, there'll be some countries will cry. And America, you know, I don't know if you know the history when America, I mean, I know you're a historian. America had to break away from Britain. What do they write in the Declaration of Independence? It's almost apologetic that there comes a time where a people who are oppressed by their host, King George, with overtaxation, has to announce that we are now parting ways. That was, what do you think, it wasn't difficult? I mean, there were arguments, we're 13 little colonies, they're gonna crush us. But that's how independence works, sometimes like a, like a baby comes out of its mother's womb or like a person who leaves their home. To grow up, you, you have to cut the umbilical cord at times. So I think that uh, America will be behind Israel, I'm not concerned about it. They may yell and scream for public, you know, for, the, for PR reasons. And I w- that's, what, that's the approach I would take. Um, and I think it'll be ultimately for long-term the best possible uh, uh, solution. But it's, but, it's, but it's like surgery. You have to cut off. You have to be ready for a lot of critique because people say, you know, humanitarian, uh, humanitarian crisis and this and that and that. But now's the time because now it's the time of war. So I think this war should not just be let's eradicate Hamas. My opinion, the war should lead to a new change of policy because we've seen what happens, and take it or leave it. You don't like it, you're gone. Do
1: you think the Israeli government strong enough for that?
0: No, I don't think they have anyone that thinks like that. Because they don't have a spiritual vision. They have people are smart. They have people who have who have experience, and they have some of them have you know a lot of strength. They went through the military. They they have. But you need spiritual vision. You need to you need to have that moral conviction that what you're doing is right. See what I'm saying now. I don't see this as. An aggressive move. I see it as a healthy move. When you see at some point, it's like you think a, a doctor wants to amputate uh, a an infected arm or limb, but you see that you're going to die without it. So you so you do the hardest possible. You, you don't want surgery. I think at this point, after fifty years from Yom Kippur War, almost sixty years from Six Day War, I think that you have a situation where um, where you you have you, you, no choice. But for that, you need a visionary that has very strong moral conviction. It can just be done uh, by rote mechanically. It has to be done with a deep passion and know that you, are, you know yet you're right. That's what you read in the Declaration of Independence. You see, I, when I read it, I see that they came to a point that they realized it's the only option. That's a critical thing. In the case of Israel, I think I don't necessarily mean a religious leader, but a spiritual leader. That's what it is.
1: Do you think they should send? Someone was saying that the Rebbe said you shouldn't send any soldiers into. I think it was in Beirut. The Rebbe was speaking about sending soldiers into Gaza. The hostages. The
0: Rebbe said during the Yom Kippur War that you should go into Damascus and to Cairo, not just Beirut, to, to just send show them
1: soldiers or to bomb. No, no. To take? go in
0: to show them that you go right into their heart, you know, like going to Moscow. It's it's important for them to know that they you're going into their central, you know, because there's a humiliation involved in that, and that that gives you much more um, psychological strength. That's the key here. You only do that with an enemy. You don't do that. I mean, allies had to bomb Berlin, not just enough to bomb uh, Frankfurt. You know, you have to go into the heart of the the heart of the lion. Or what do they call it, the heart of the tiger? That's how you have to do it. But again, it's not coming from hatred. It's coming from necessity. That is the approach, out of strength, all out of strength. And yes, if that was done properly in 1967, to be honest, we wouldn't have these problems today. You know, if Sinai was never returned to Egypt, someone pointed out to me, Gaza could never be armed. Where do you think the arms are coming from? They're not coming from the water. They're not coming from the north. They're coming from the south.
1: The rougher border. Yeah.
0: So... So what, do you say, what does that tell you?
1: But me you know, the Sinai
0: the Sinai wilderness was a buffer zone of miles and miles, you know how big it is?
1: I been. You know? So the final thing I want to ask you is sitting around when crown heights were in Sydney we're all over the world and sometimes we feel useless, but we know the rubber had a completely different approach. There's no such thing as being useless. Sometimes I feel like I should be in Israel. I'm not a soldier. I'm not a, I'm not in Israel. I can't pack boxes and send it to the border. So what can I do?
0: I mentioned earlier, Jews have always known that every war is fought on two fronts, the physical front and the spiritual front. I mentioned Jacob prepared a prayer, appeasement war. Um, the previous Rebbe told my father-in-law, who had come to the United States in 1947, he was in Israel, when the 1948 independence war broke out. So his father, his father said to him, come back to Israel and fight with your brothers, you know. But I asked the Rebbe, and the previous Rebbe said, who's a deserter in an army, in military? Not someone who doesn't fight, someone who leaves his position. So if someone's running the communications department, another person in the kitchen, or another person in intelligence, That's your job. Your job, since you're here, is to study Torah. It's also part of the war. You know, Yoyev and David Amalek were partners. David prayed, learned. Yoav was the commander-in-chief. Yeshua fought Amalek, Moshe Rabbeinu prayed. We need both. We have to feel like we're mobilized now with the same intensity, Messias Nefesh, like the soldiers. Thank God it's not really giving, putting your life in danger, but you have to have the same passion. You have to wake up earlier, you have to learn more and more mitzvahs and more kindness. We can't be complacent and just say, you know what, I'm here in the United States or wherever wherever I am and thank God I'm not there. No, 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 no. You have to fight the war in a spiritual way because we believe absolutely that when you spread light and you spread kindness, it's in for, it helps everybody on this earth, including Israel. When we daven for them, that's what we believe. The davening helps, putting on a mezuzah, putting on film. Remember, we're one organism. One part of the body gets stronger, the other part gets stronger. If one part of the body is weaker, we all are weaker. So this is the general Jewish approach. I'm not even saying anything really new. It's, it's always been the story. The problem is we live in such freedom today. It's easy to take for granted our our luxuries, our comforts. But but at a time like this, we need to be as mobilized as every uh, soldier in the military is in Israel. And it's a mohammas based of it. You know, it's a Muhammad, it's a spiritual Muhammad, It's a spiritual Muhammad also even on a information war, media war, on minds, on the minds and hearts to understand what's going on, educate yourself, and be able to present when people ask questions. You have to know what to answer. Like, you know, why, why, why do the Palestinians have any real legitimate concerns? You have to know how to answer that to that. You can't just say, they're just killing us. You wanna explain what's going on. And there's so many other ways that we can fight this uh, battle. That's how I see it. And so bottom line, it's a call to action for each one of us, comes out, even children. The Reverend then before Yom Kippur War, speaking a lot about the education of children. And then later he said, Sukkot in 1974, 1973, after the Kippur War, the Rebbe said he didn't, Neva he prophesized and he didn't know what he was prophesizing. Mm-hmm. And he said he doesn't know what was pushing him to speak about, which means from the mouth of babes, the foundation of Torah and strength, that will, will eliminate, eradicate the enemy. And so children play a tremendous role. And I see the vigils, I see the, the 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 kinusim, the gatherings of children saying Tilim, saying Psukim, adding Zdaka, tefillah, Torah. This is this is really Mordechai turned to the children to help the Xira against Haman, you know. Uh, to fight the Xaira of Haman and so on. So women, of course, have their particular role, they are leaders, and their merit, all the golas came. Because of their faith, their deeper faith. So we all have a tremendous role to play. We have to realize that we're not, um, we're either part of the problem or we're part of the solution. My father would like to say, as a journalist, he would tell me, there are three types of people people who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who ask what happened. We have to be people who make things happen. And we have a Torah. God gave us a Torah. We have Hashem. And we have Am Al Chai. We have absolute confidence. We will prevail. And when there's a setback, we have to figure out how to turn that into a liability, into an asset.
1: Thank you so much for all your time. May Hashem protect the soldiers, may Hashem protect the land. Amen. Ultimately, go'olah, now. Thank
0: you, and you continue using these airwaves to reach many people. yes, I say, and I second that, Hashem should protect, and we should have the least amount of pain just to resolve all this. And Hashem should be menachem, comfort those families that are shattered by what's happened. But I only have good news and ultimately the gu'ula, is vashleim.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.